Welcome to House Call with Dr. Mack, where you get a real doc with straight talk for the whole you. It has been so exciting to see that we've been on several continents and in various countries around the world. We've been able to be on the continent of Asia, Africa. We've been in New Zealand, the country of New Zealand, the country of Jamaica, Mexico, and in various cities in the United States. We want to hear from you. We want to know who you are, where you are. You can reach us on our House Call with Dr. Mac community page. That's House Call with Dr. Mac, the community page. You can email us at realdoc74 at gmail.com. That's R-E-A-L-D-O-C-7-4 at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at realdoc74. We want to wish everybody in our community a very happy and safe holiday season. For most of you, this is the time of year that is filled with laughter and joy and, and just a nice hustle and bustle. For some, it's a little challenging. It could be because of the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, not accomplishing a goal that we had set for ourselves. It could be various things that have affected us emotionally and our psyche. So I felt that we should open up a conversation with a gentleman that I believe impacted my life greatly. And the way that I wanted to introduce these next two episodes was through a story that I've heard. It's called Two Boats and a Helicopter. I'm going to paraphrase it here. So there was a gentleman who was in his home and there was really bad inclement weather that was approaching their community. They had been warned that they needed to evacuate their, their neighborhoods, but he decided to stay back. As the rains came down, the water level began to rise inside his home. So the gentleman decided to go up on his roof. As he's sitting on his roof, the water level rises up to his waist. There's a boat that comes by with some people and they say, hey, you look like you need some help. Why don't you jump in our boat and we'll take you with us to safety? He says, no thanks. I believe in God. He will save me. And he sends the boat away. The rains come down even harder. The water level rises now up to his neck. Another boat comes by and says, my friend, you look as if you need some help. Jump in our boat. We'll take you with us to safety. And the gentleman smiles and says, no, thank you. I'm a firm believer in God, and I know he will save me. And he sends the second boat away. The rings keep coming, and the water level keeps rising. By now, it's up to his mouth. A helicopter flies over, drops down their rescue rope, and says, jump on. We'll take you to safety. 
The gentleman looks up and smiles and says, No, thank you. I'm a firm believer in God. He will save me and sends the helicopter away. Unfortunately, the gentleman dies. He's taken to heaven and he has an interview with God. He says, God, I don't understand. I'm a firm believer in you. I'm a nice person. I help others. I'm unself, I'm, I'm selfless. Why didn't you save me? And God scratches his head in confusion and says, I'm confused myself. I sent you two boats and a helicopter. My friends, that's the way I believe sometimes we react. I believe that God sends us godly people in our lives that are trained with the tools that we need. And regardless of our spiritual foundation, our church homes, our, fam our church families, we need to take that extra help from a godly person that can give us some tools and help us take care of our emotional side to help connect those dots so that we can then become a whole person. When we're whole, we're able to fill our cups, our cups run over, and we're able to become a vital person in our society, in our community. I believe Eric Engelking was that person for me. And so I share him with you in these next two episodes. So let's sit down. Let's have some conversations. Let's connect these dots. Let's get some straight talk. Welcome to House Call with Dr. Mack, where you get a real doc with straight talk for the whole you. Today, I'm sitting in Potomac Institute here in Silver Spring, Maryland with Eric Engelking. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. I'm really interested to start our conversation because of your background. Mm -hmm. You are a licensed clinical social worker. Correct. And we met because of where my last practice was. I'm an OBGYN, mm -hmm. and I was practicing with Women First OBGYN Associates in Silver Spring. Had just come to that practice, and I had a patient that I had to give some very bad news to. I had to tell a patient that they had an incurable illness. I've worked with patients with that type of illness before but I've never given anybody their primary diagnosis. I remember talking to Iona and saying, what am I gonna do? How am I gonna tell this young lady that she's HIV positive? And she said, you know what? You should go upstairs and talk to Eric. And I'm like, why? <laughs> and she said, he could give you some really good words. He could help you through this. I said, okay. So I came up here and I told you my situation. And you said, 
Okay. What you need to say is, we have something very serious to talk about today. And to pause. And you told me that she may go, she may stare straight through you at this point. She may even say, am I dying? You know, you gave me some mm-hmm. scenarios to work through. And then you said, you're going to just tell her factually what's happening, but you're also going to sit and you're going to wait. I said, okay, I can do that. I can do that. And going through that process with that patient, giving her the diagnosis, almost everything you said happened that day. Matter of fact, this patient and I have become very good acquaintances, almost friends now to this day. I've taken care of her through two of her pregnancies. But the one thing that really caught my attention that day was at the end of the day, you came downstairs and you asked me how I was doing. Because you could see in my eyes probably the deer in headlights. <laughs> that, yes, I did. <laughs> that was of a new physician that was starting out. You know, we have this, this, um, I'm going to save the world. You know, I want to come out and heal the world, save. That's that's the desire. Exactly. And when you have to give bad news, nobody really trains you for that. You are taught to manage disease. You are taught to get somebody back to a level. But what happens when you can't do that? And so you helped me through that process. That was our first interaction. That was our first interaction. That was our first interaction. That sounds like me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, hey, that's a pretty cool guy. So the next time was um, Iona, I was talking to her about my test taking Mm -hmm. challenges. I have now come to find out that I have ADHD and possibly something subcategorized as inattentive type. So now my life is making sense academically. I I wear a watch now, as you can see. I'm more conscious of time just because of that. But Iona, again, directed me to you. She said, you should probably go talk to Eric because at the time I was facing an upcoming major exam. Well, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about that, but we ended up starting a journey that has greatly impacted my life and my family's life. I lost my father. So I came to you and I said, we're gonna have to hold on the test taking. I lost my dad and I probably need to come and talk to you about that. And it was because of our interactions here in this wonderful, lovely office that we're sitting in today that you gave me some tools that I was able to put in my emotional bag and start this newer journey of life, a new a new chapter. Okay. And I want to thank you publicly for that. Well, you're welcome. I really do. And now I want us to take a step back and I want you to share with my community your story in terms of how you actually became a licensed certainly yes. um, social worker, clinical social worker if you could. Well, I'm sitting in this chair as a result of my own experience in terms of my therapy. Hmm. Um, When I was in my mid-twenties, I had a very significant crisis in my married life that really stripped me totally bare of any defenses I might have had 
to cover up the deeper feelings that I was living with my whole life. And so I got into my own treatment, my own therapy, uh, and found enormous value in that. Uh, It's a process of discovery. Mm -hmm. Frequently it's frightening and Mm -hmm. painful, uh, and yet it's very, very productive. And through that, as I considered what I wanted to do further as work, because I was planning to go to graduate school either in law or social work or uh, to get a PhD and teach, Mm -hmm. Uh, through a series of different experiences, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to become a therapist because Mm -hmm. actually contrary to what many people might think if they've never been in treatment, when you're working with a therapist, um, you're really doing important and satisfying work. I feel that I get to sit with people who are making every effort to be honest, to understand themselves, to demonstrate courage, integrity. And I don't find that in a lot of places outside. (laughs) So I do this work not so much as a desire to help and heal other people as much as I do from my own experience of being with people Mm -hmm. that I find value in being with. If you, you said that you wanted to find people, um, help people, and, and help them on their journey and their experiences, why not be a pastor? Why not shepherd a congregation? Well, I, one of my undergraduate degrees is in theology. Hmm. And I found that the level of vulnerability is far greater in a consultation room than it is in a church unfortunately really yes yeah that there's despite a lot of pronouncements there still exists in in many religious communities not all but in many religious communities fear fear of judgment fear of self-judgment fear and shame really end up being the two most destructive uh, emotions that we can have because we don't know what to do with them and mm-hmm. we usually run away from them which mm-hmm. is the worst thing we can do from our, for, uh, with our emotions so fear and shame and there is a lot of fear and shame that still happens in religious groups very much so and do you think that that fear and shame really lends itself to people keeping themselves sequestered when they are going through an emotional time in their lives where they should go outside of themselves and seek professional help. Yes. There's a lot of shame about even coming into therapy. Mm -hmm. People feel Mm -hmm. very, very uh, exposed, but besides feeling exposed, there's a great deal of shame. People feel like something must be really wrong with me that I have to go and see a therapist. Why is that? Do you, do you, why do because you it's emotions? two things. One, it's, it's so personal, mm-hmm. and the level of vulnerability that's associated with the pain that people come in with makes people feel weak. Very often the experience of vulnerability is confused for being weak. Wow. And yet if you stop and think about it, nothing of any significance happens to you in your life unless you're willing to feel vulnerable. That is very true. But it's so easy, especially for men. 
to experience vulnerability as a weakness. Is that same vulnerability very pronounced when going through the grieving process? Most definitely. Is that why we tend to really sequester ourselves? Well, yes, the vulnerability on many levels. The first level of vulnerability has to do with the loss of a significant person in our life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, depending on who that person is and what role they played in your life, uh, it's a, if it's a parent or a child or a sibling especially or a very close friend, uh, actually your whole sense of reality is challenged. There's a disorientation yes. that takes place. Yes. The world doesn't feel the same. The world's not the same. Your world does change. Your emotional world changes. Now, when your emotional world changes, when the world changes, are you supposed to try and get back to where it was before that change? Or are you supposed to now operate from a new perspective? Now, you see, what you've just done is you've given me two choices. <laughs> and, and this is pretty typical of the way that we think. Okay. So what's, what's the outcome we want to move toward? Well, one of the most difficult things to understand about being a human being is that our experience evolves. It emerges. Mm -hmm. It emerges. So that each person's grieving is personal. Yes. There is no concrete step one, two, three, four about how to grieve. Now, it sounds like you're going against the grain when you say that there's no step one, two, three, four, because we are all taught those stages of grief that Dr. Kubler-Ross so poignantly put together as she was observing people that were going through a terminal illness that shared common experiences. It sounds like you're saying there is really no linear one, two, three, four. There definitely is not. A linear one, two, three, four. And Dr. Ross called those stages. Okay. And actually, you can look at those experiences not just as grief, but as applying to any loss situation. Hmm. Now, I had the privilege uh, to spend some time in, in an educational process with Dr. Ross. Hmm. And she regretted having written the book that identify those things as stages really? because people again people are looking for a quick answer something that will take away the pain something that will take away the confusion so we tend to gravitate towards something that we can feel is certain at a time where life feels so uncertain huh. so these are experiences now if you think about stages you might think of them as stages because there's a level of, of uh, sophistication or a, a level of being primitive about them. And the most primitive response to something that we don't want is a denial, which hmm. she calls stage mm -hmm. one, is mm -hmm. denial. Mm -hmm. just, there's disbelief. I think it's probably more accurate to call that disbelief as opposed yes. to denial. Yes. Denial sounds like an intentional, conscientious effort to say, no to something okay it's more of a disbelief it's more mm -hmm. of the and if of course anyone who suffered a deep loss will say i can't believe yes yes i can't believe i can't believe i'll never see him again right right you know, i can't believe i'll never hear his voice again yes yeah, there's a disbelief i remember when my my dad died for about four 
four nights in a row right after he died, uh, I would go out in the evening and just look for him. Huh. I just looked for him. Now, I knew, I knew right. that he had died. I right. knew I wasn't going to find him. But there was a calling in me to go out and to look for him. So I followed that. Huh. I acted on it. I, I trusted the process, or whatever it was, and I, and I followed the process. Were you at the time um, very aware, or had you started your educational process into psych, um, yes. clinical psychology yes. or clinical social work? Okay. Yes. Okay. Actually, so. I, actually, I had I had devised. A, I used to work at a hospital in the education department, hmm. and I got to teach a lot of great things. I could do a, a need assessment, hmm. and so I taught classes in communication, self-image psychology. Uh, this is before I went and got my graduate degree, okay. and eventually. Uh, well, I actually taught, started this class in death and dying. Mm. So I was teaching a class in death and dying, or I had taught it when my dad died. And actually, my master's uh, thesis was a comparison of death anxiety prior to taking the class, three months after the class, and then six months after the class, to see what impact the class made on what was called death anxiety which there was already an existing questionnaire for. I didn't have to devise that questionnaire. Wow. Yeah. So I, I, I knew that the, the idea of grieving was very personal mm -hmm. and that um, if you have somebody that you can talk to or people that you can talk to that encourages you to follow uh, where your experience is taking you, that that can be very healing. So I had that confidence in that process, so that's why I, I followed it. Okay. Yeah. Now, you, you were saying that you had the opportunity to actually um, have some time with Dr. Kubler-Ross. Right, it was just a workshop, a three-day workshop. workshop. Yeah. I, I recently read um, uh, an article in the Huffington Post by M Megan Devine, who is a psychologist, and she has her own um, web web space where she offers tools to people and she herself talks about experiencing an untimely death mm -hmm. you know of, of her husband where she's like you know breakfast was any ordinary day and then by lunchtime your world is completely turned upside mm -hmm. down and that's where I read the this notion or that Dr. Coolier Ross was saying that it's not a linear process and when I was reading this article, it actually gave me relief and mm. release mm. because I hear so much of people talk about these stages. And it's almost like if you're stuck in a stage, you better hurry up and get your act together. Or you know, only so much time should be spent in a stage. Because if you linger there, you're going to mess up this grieving process. How, what would you say to somebody that feels that right now, that they've gone through a recent loss, they're listening to us on, on the podcast, they have not sought out any, uh, any professional help, um, but they know from just their college or high school that there are these stages or somebody in their, their circle has said, you know, you, you need to get this together, you know, what, what would you say to somebody? I would say to, to anyone that's grieving, uh, what I have observed in my own personal life, having uh, survived both 
my parents' death and a sister, um, that grieving, grieving really requires grieving with someone. Doesn't necessarily have to be a healthcare professional, mm-hmm. but people who are crying, mm-hmm. perhaps sobbing deeply by themselves because they feel more comfortable mm-hmm. just feeling if other people don't see them. That's where a lot of shame and self-consciousness comes in. That there is something that does not work about that. That being in the company of someone that you trust, mm-hmm. that you have confidence in, that you don't feel that you have to hide how you feel, and being able to feel the loss with that person, that's what brings healing. It's not the, it's not the intensity or the frequency of the pain that you feel. That almost will never dissipate. You can repress it, but it doesn't dissipate. I had a client who lost her fiance. Uh, he died running a marathon. And she, as she reported to me, and as I observed on several occasions, had the most profound physical grieving I've ever seen in terms of the intensity mm-hmm. of the sadness. Mm. And most of that, until she came in to see me, was done by herself. Mm. And all it was doing was making her depressed. Yes. So if you're grieving, it's, it's, it's essential that you be doing it with somebody who's sympathetic. Frequently, if the other person knows the person mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well, there's mm-hmm. a shared grieving that happens yes yes that can be very healing yes but it doesn't have to necessarily be that but that can be healing and when you say that I feel that because I had to come back to Maryland my my family of origin is in Alabama so Mm -hmm. my mother my father my brother my grandparents the core that I grew up with still lived in Alabama that's where my dad passed away Mm -hmm. and then 10 months later my grandmother passes away so you got two significant deaths in a 12-month period of time. And I feel that coming back here, I didn't have that community mm-hmm. that lost them too, that I could grieve with. And so I believe it was essential for me to find you or somebody like you. Because what you helped me to realize, too, in this whole process was that I had developed something called survivor guilt. So my husband and I became very um, cordial roommates. You know, we would get up. We would make sure that at the time we had one child, so our son made sure he was off to school. We made sure everything was together. You know, there was just the motions, just going through the day. And I didn't realize that I had actually shut down from him, Mm -hmm. that I had closed him off because I had this, this, um, I I had something I was emulating all my life. You know, my parents had this marriage. I was looking for, you know, oh, okay, now I'm married. Now my mother's a widow. Oh, now what do I do? What, what happens now? And so going through this process, I was able to pick up a tool. And that's one thing that I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. when I would come here. You would help me navigate down these roads where I would have my own 
Aha. Yes. Right. That how, was you. How, how that does was, that happen? That was you being open to your own experience. Hmm. See, our our psychological health is very different from our biological health. Our biological health is much different than our psychological health. This concept, I can't wait for him to unpack. So I'm going to step out of the way. And we're going to finish connecting these dots. We're going to finish having this conversation. And let's continue this straight talk. <laughs>